Who Gets to Decide, a liberty-based podcast that brings a little piece of sanity to a confused society drowning in a culture of craziness. And here is your host, Seth Martin. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to Who Gets to Decide. Thank you for joining me for another exciting episode. It's still uh, Black History Month, and um, I'm still... I'm just, you know, profiling a few people here in Black History Month that that I really like. Um, And today I'm going to talk a little bit about Walter Williams. Now, Walter Williams uh, died last year. And I remember posting something on Facebook about his death. And he was kind of a hero of mine. He's an economist who worked at George Mason Mason University, taught economics, and was just a a wonderful, pleasant man who had a real gift for explaining difficult economic concepts in a way that average people could understand. And he took that gift to the world in programs, documentaries, uh, publications. He had a syndicated column, and he had uh, TV shows. um, And he would focus on... um, blacks and and black issues like um, housing issues in the ghetto or uh, minimum wage, um, families in the black community, and and just various things like that that were were, um, really not unique to blacks, but kind of pointed to a particular type of problem that was happening in the black community that he felt like was brought on by the uh, all the poverty programs after the civil rights movement. And so I, I just thought it would be good to listen to some of the what Dr. Williams had to say. Uh, if you don't know Walter Williams, this would be a good exposure for you to learn a little bit about Walter Williams. I highly encourage you to go online and listen to just anything he talks about. Um, he's just a brilliant, brilliant man, and he had a, this gift for explaining things in a way that um, – that made sense to the average person. So the first thing I'm going to do is play this. uh, One of the things he did really early in his career when he was at Temple University is he basically issued a pardon for all white people of European descent. And uh, I just want to play it here and start, start um, start the program today with that. Uh, I, Walter Williams, do declare full and general amnesty and pardon to all persons of European ancestry for both their own grievances and those of their forebearers against my people. Therefore, from this day forward, Americans of European ancestry can stand straight and proud knowing they are without guilt and thus obliged not to act like damn fools in their relationships with Americans of African ancestry. So you, you got to laugh a little bit when you hear that. Um, Walter Williams, uh, his basic viewpoint about blacks and about what we've done for blacks or done to blacks is, is kind of under the, the category of this white guilt, you know. And that's what this pardon and uh, amnesty proclamation is all about. He explains this further in this short little clip about the welfare state. The welfare state has done to black Americans what slavery could not have done 
Jim Crow and the harshest racism could not have done, namely to destroy the black family. So this is not something that we hear a lot about, really. Um, in fact, if you talk about this, sometimes people call you racist and whatnot, and, and so therefore people don't talk about it. But one of the things and that Walter Williams is alluding to here is before 1965 in the... Uh, poverty programs and and all the things that were designed to help poor people in general, not just blacks. But you had strong families in the black community. Um, you had um, children being born in wedlock in very high numbers, um, 70% or something like that. And, you know, basically – a lot of these programs, they broke up the family because they provided incentives um, for the father not to be in the home and, and, and various things like this. And he's saying that that's, and I, he, in his career, he's given a lot of evidence for this. So he's not just saying it. He's, he's, he has shown it to be true that these programs, although well-intentioned, maybe, I mean, we don't really know, but Presumably, they were well-intentioned, but these programs have been bad for blacks and mainly because they've been bad for black families. They've, they've driven a wedge into black families in such a way that the mother and the father of the children are not living together. They're not raised as a family and, and things of this nature. A lot of people say, well, the minimum wage is an anti-poverty device. Well, that is utter nonsense. It doesn't even pass the smell test. Because if it were an anti-poverty device, well then, instead of spending all this money on foreign aid, we just have our experts at the State Department tell Bangladesh, well, you could be rich like we are, just have a higher minimum wage. One of the things that's a little bit frustrating about economic subjects is it requires sometimes a lengthy explanation and the the arguments against something are not, you know, intuitive. And the minimum wage is one of these things. Um, you know, why not pay people more? I mean, what's wrong with that? And so Walter doesn't go into it here, but you can find plenty of talks that he gives where he goes into great detail about the minimum wage. And essentially, the... The crux of it is, is that it prices people out at the lower end of the labor market. So, for example, <clears throat> let's say you only have, let's say you're not very, you don't have a lot of skills, you're not, you know, don't have a lot of experience, but you're trying to get started in a job. Well, your labor might only be worth $4 an hour uh, because, that's all somebody's willing to pay you to do what you can do. The, the, the level of value that you bring to that enterprise is not sufficient to pay you the minimum wage. So what happens? You, well, you just don't get hired. It just, you, just, you just remain unemployed. So the minimum wage, what it does is it sets a, a floor on the minimum amount of value that you need to bring to an enterprise before you can be hired. And if you don't bring that level of value, well, then there's, you just have no skills. You have no, you have no way to get a job. And the problem with this is <clears throat> if you also don't have 
money and resources to get educated and things like that, then there's no other way for you to get skills. Some, sometimes the only way for people to get skills is to go do something and learn by doing. And this is why the minimum wage is, is harmful. Now, it's not just harmful to blacks. It's harmful to, to everybody, everybody on the lower range of the labor market. So just think in terms of somebody that, you know, maybe can mow your yard or paint your house or something like that, um, but maybe can't be a customer service agent or, you know, maybe doesn't know how to fix your electrical problems or your plumbing problems or, you know, there's a, there's a, a level of skill that you have to learn. And sometimes the best way to learn that is in a job. And what I mean by spiritual poverty is where people lack the ambition. They've, uh, they've developed the ideas of dependency and they're engaging in all kinds of uh, uh, pathological behavior, such as uh, the high illegitimacy rate where 70-some percent of black kids are born out of wedlock. Uh, and it was like in 1940, it was only 13 percent. So in this segment, he, he brings up the subject of something called spiritual poverty. And spiritual poverty is just a result of this wedge that's being driven into the community. Um, you know, if you, if you don't have um, a mother and father, let's say you're a young boy, okay, and you're growing up in a fatherless home, you know, there's certain things that, that young boys need to learn from their fathers, you know, I mean, it's just, there is no substitute for that. Um, and he's saying that this spiritual poverty is kind of a result of the state coming in and trying to be the family. Uh, for Again, not just for blacks. This, ha- this happens for whites, too. It's just, it, it's been more destructive for blacks because... Um, they were starting from a poverty position. And, um, and so, you know, he said in the 1930s that um, children born out of wedlock, um, it was only, what, 30% in the 1930s. And now he's saying it's 70%. And this was a few years old, this, this clip, I think, from 2018. So you can see the trend. The trend has is, is been down and to the right for blacks for a long time. And I think there's, a, I think Walter's right. There's a lot of evidence that points to the fact that the state has replaced the family for people in poverty and, and it's not helping. It's not, it's not helping these people um, get out of poverty. It's just maintaining that poverty and, and, and you get what they call generational poverty as a result of it. There are health districts in New York City where for every thousand children, 781 are living on welfare. The illegitimacy ratios in, in the city, um, in some of the, in the slums, is up now towards 50%. Half the children born are illegitimate. Uh, and we don't understand that. So the clip you just heard was a, a short clip from Senator Patrick Moynihan talking about uh, the problems in the black community, the slums, the ghettos, that kind of thing. And it's kind of an example of this white guilt that I'm talking about. Now, the next clip you're going to hear about is a critique on that white guilt and the subsequent behavior uh, by another 
black economist who's a hero, and I will be doing a show on him, named Thomas Sowell. And Thomas Sowell, I love his voice. He's got a very deep baritone voice. And he just you could just listen to him for hours, or at least I could. And the irony is that people who do that are congratulating themselves to this day for having created the welfare state with no thought about what were the, what what were, what were the what was the collateral damage, and as what and are the small things that you were able to do for people worth that damage? Yeah. So the answer to that is no, but the problem is we live in this administrative state where we're ruled by you know the busybody intelligentsia, and these are smart people. Okay, I'm not saying they're not smart people. But they have a lack of respect for tradition, for institutions like the family. You know, they they don't understand, or the, maybe they do understand, but they don't really. They 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 think well, it can only help. It couldn't hurt, right? So, but it does hurt uh, because it takes away people's desire to go work and to do for themselves. What we find is the basic economic principle, and that is. If you tax something, you're going to get less of it. And if you subsidize it, you're going to get more of it. And what we've been doing is subsidizing slovenly behavior. This idea is so simple, the essence of it, and, it, and yet so true. Uh, the problem I see with this idea sometimes being implemented, you know, that if you tax something, you get less of it. And if you subsidize, you get more of it is on the subsidy side, we don't often identify what it is we're subsidizing. And Walter says here, you know, he says it pretty clearly, you know, the welfare state subsidizes slovenly behavior. So a lot of times people think, well, it's food subsidies and these are good, or it's, it's income, uh, earned income credit, and that's good. But what he says is he kind of turns that around. He says, no, 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 this is slovenly behavior. So now we're going to just, Walter's going to talk a little bit about what it was like when he was growing up. And I think it's, I think it's instructive because, you know, Walter grew up in a time when there was no poverty programs. And, you know, now he didn't have a father in his family because his father um, uh, passed away, but uh, his mother later remarried. And he ended up having a father figure. But for years, he, he talks about he was the only, him and his sister were the only kids in the neighborhood who didn't have a father in the house. Well, now it's just the opposite. If I wanted to go to the movies or if, um, if I wanted to go to the amusement park, um, there was no money from a mother to give us to go to the amusement park. And so uh, we had to work. You know, a lot of young people work, um, to make money of their own. That way they don't have to go to their parents. That's another great thing about working when you're young. Um, the other thing I want to say about the, the previous segment is these, the intelligentsia class, the managerial class in government, um, or the elites is like some people like to call them. The other thing that they don't have a healthy respect for is markets and how it seems intuitive or it seems counterintuitive rather that, you know, you could take a smart group of people and they could plan the economy and adjust for every single outcome, you know, plan for every single potential outcome and, and then lay out a great plan to, to make all that work. The problem is there's literally billions and billions of transactions that are happening on a daily basis that govern, that ultimately govern 
what people do economically, how they act in the market. And, and you're never going to be able to better this. I don't care how many smart people you have in government, how good the managerial state is, how many laws you pass. It's just never going to be as good as the collective distribution of decisions that are being made by billions of actors in the, in the economy. And that's really, that's really the essence of economics. And, um, it's really what Walter Williams was all about. All right. So he talks about this, uh, growing up as a kid and working at this place called Horn and Harder or something like that. It's, I'm not familiar with the name of the company, but it's apparently pretty big at one time in, in the Philadelphia area. I thought the Horn and Harder's was a, a, a wonderful job. Horn and Harder was a very, very famous restaurant in Philadelphia. And the good thing about working at Horn and Harder, it's like, here I am with 14 or 15 years old, you could eat all you want. And the way to a, an adolescent's heart is, to, is by giving them lots of food. I know my mom used to complain about how much food we ate when we were young kids. So I'm, I'm sure this was a huge benefit to the whole family. The fact that he could eat there for free, but, uh, yeah, so he worked as a young man and, and, uh, um, you know, we're going to talk a little bit more about this and, and then kind of wrap it up again with a, some, uh, to kind of reiterate the minimum wage thing. I'm going to basically play the same thing I played a little bit earlier but uh, connected with some follow-up comments from Thomas Sowell. Today, in ghettos like I grew up in, 70% of black children who look for jobs cannot find them. That's a shame, because a first job means much more than pocket change. It's a chance for a start, maybe in a store like this. They're even more important for kids who grew up in broken homes, who've gone to rotten schools, because if they're going to learn anything that will make them a more valuable worker in the future, they're not going to learn in their neighborhoods, they're not going to learn in their schools, so they have to learn it through on the job. And what the minimum wage law does, it nixes that learning. So intuitively, everybody knows this, right? You learn things on the job. You, you learn how to do, how to get things done, how to, you develop some specialized knowledge and and things like that when you work on the job. Again, just to tighten this up a little bit, you know, if, if, if your labor, if the labor, the value of the labor that you can provide to the business is only worth four bucks an hour and the minimum wage is $7 an hour, $10 an hour or whatever, then you're, you're not, you're not going to be valuable to the business. And people, they don't just look at you and go, well, you're not worth $7 an hour. That, that's not what they do. They ask you, you know, what can you do? Tell me about your experience. What have you done in the past? Things like this. This is how they, this is how they get to that price point. So um, everybody knows on-the-job training is, is important, but if you, if you set the minimum wage so high that people can't even get that first job, then there's no – there's no ladder to climb. And this is why you can't just raise the minimum wage to $50 an hour or $100 an hour or $1,000 an hour. You would just price everybody out of employment. Most people are unaware in 1948, uh, black 16 and 17 year olds had an unemployment rate just under 10%. Uh, they were not to get down that low again in even the most prosperous years of the 60s, 70s, or any time right up to the present moment. A lot of people will say, well, the minimum wage 
is an anti-poverty device. Well, that is utter nonsense. It doesn't even pass the smell test. Because if it were an anti-poverty device, well then, instead of spending all this money on foreign aid, we just have our experts at the State Department tell Bangladesh, well, you could be rich like we are, just have a higher minimum wage. And you know, this is intuitive, actually, if you put yourself in the shoes of the business owner. Let's say that I, I've got some tasks that I need done, okay? And I'm sitting there thinking, golly, I mean, you know, I could, it would really help me if I could find somebody that would do this task. And I'd be willing to pay, you know, I don't know, $10,000 a year for somebody to do this task. The problem is there's no market. There's no, you can't, you can't hire somebody for $10,000 a year. And so the task just doesn't get done or they have to automate around it or some other method. One of the big mistakes that uh, we make in terms of looking at uh, black history in the United States is our failure to recognize that blacks did not accept slavery passively. One of the more famous quasi-free Negroes was Frederick Douglass. He did uh, ship caulking and did many other kinds of jobs, and he would go back and give his owner some money. Despite the rhetoric that people use, considering uh, blacks as a lower form of human beings, uh, economics tends to bring people to their senses. Whites were willing to hire blacks. Whites were willing to make purchases from blacks. Why? Because either they worked for lower wages or a higher quality uh, product. And so again, economics tends to bring people to their senses. This is another thing that many of us uh, know intuitively, especially if you live in the Southwest, uh, where we have a lot of uh, people that live here from uh, Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, um, different, you know, different what's called Hispanic people, but uh, they don't actually like to be called Hispanic. That's just something we call them. Um, but uh, you, you see this uh, with, with this group of people. People will hire them to paint their house or um, do some job because they're, they're actually very skilled in these trades and they don't, you don't have to worry about paying 30 or 40 or 50% more to support some union. Uh, so we see this today. And, and of course this existed during slavery with a, with a quote, quasi slaves. And he mentions Frederick Douglass, who was a very famous individual for a lot of different reasons, but he, he brings up Frederick Douglass here that, uh, Frederick Douglass actually had had an owner, a slave owner, but what he would do is he would go work and earn money and then give his uh, slave owner a cut of that of the proceeds. And that's how he gained skills and worked his way up. So it's it's re it's really not any different than today, right? You don't have any skills when you come out of high school if you graduate high school. I mean, you know some a little bit of math hopefully and you know how to read, but other than that you really don't know anything. You don't know anything about creating valuable services or products for consumers. And so you have to work your way into that. And so um, Frederick Douglass had the right idea, right? He was going to be prepared for when slavery was over. He was going to be able to step into the real world and earn his keep. And the thing that keeps us from doing that today is the government. The government is the new uh, slave owner, effectively. And they, they, except they don't want to 
uh, pay people, poor people to, to do anything in particular, like, like they did in the South, like pick cotton or whatever. They want to pay people to sit home and watch, uh, Maury Povich on TV and, um, I don't know, sit around and do nothing primarily. So, you know, just, it's just, just, you know, and Candace Owens makes this point that, that the new slave owner is the government. And it's, again, it's not just of black people, it's of white people too. And, um, and people of all different kinds of heritage. All right, so this next segment, Walter brings up the sports industry or the music industry. And he makes the point that um, we don't have any unions or anybody suing anybody there. We just have excellence. And, um, and I think he's right. I think the sports and music businesses are excellent points um, uh, to poke holes in the, the problem with all the largesse that the government gives uh, minorities and poor people in general. At one time, uh, black Americans were not allowed in professional basketball and, and football. Well, how did, how did black Americans go from not being in these sports right. uh, to being the top and dominating them? It, it wasn't due to any anti-discriminatory uh, laws or or affirmative action at all. Mm-hmm. So you say, well, how do you explain it? I think that these guys can just do a 360 slam dunk in your face and you can't do anything about it. <laughs> you mean you're saying I can't do it? No, 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 no you can't. I know you say it wasn't affirmative action. I agree, it probably wasn't. It was the fact that they started becoming so good at what they were doing. You, you, well, you couldn't ignore them. You, you're right, I mean, that, but that you is, still had to get the public to accept that. Yeah. Well, well, I don't know. In, in the sense of like when, when Branch Rickey, the uh, the uh, Dodgers, when he uh, when he hired Jackie Robinson, that was a risk. But once he hired Jackie Robinson, there was this huge pool of black talent. Robinson is the first of his race to be honored with admission to the Shrine of the National Game. His sure fielding. Branch Rickey was known for a long time as someone who had a keen appreciation for the dollar. For him, it would be a bonanza to bring Jackie Robinson into the major leagues. So much that Jackie Robinson was put through was uh, due to the fact that other people understood that once he broke the color line, it was all over. See, what what allowed the race thing to, to stay as long as it did was the absence of competition. Major League Baseball had an exemption from uh, the antitrust laws. And so the cartel was safe, they could do whatever they wanted. But once one member of that cartel broke, the, broke that barrier, then the others would be at an enormous uh, disadvantage within organized baseball if they didn't also get, get black players. And of course they, they, they did. And another easy basket coming for- In the sports uh, or in the music industry where you see black excellence, you don't see any affirmative action. You don't see any lawsuits what you do see is, is excellence. In this segment, he introduces the idea of a cartel. And a cartel is just a group or consortium that operates uh, with some special privilege in, in the marketplace. And, of course, this creates uh, distortions in the marketplace. But in this particular instance, you had the, you know, the entire Negro League existed outside of Major League Baseball. And he points out that Branch Rickey was uh, willing to step out and hire Jackie Robinson and show the world that, you know, some of these players didn't 
deserve to be in the major leagues. And once that was accepted, um, I think Thomas Sowell makes the point that there was this whole other league, this Negro league that was just sitting on the sidelines waiting to jump into the major leagues. And this is the way it is with everything. You know, when we had the financial crisis and people would ask me, well, do you think we ought to bail out these banks? I said, no, no, we shouldn't bail out the banks. Well, what, what happened to the economy? No, 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 no. Well, you know, are, are you really, do you really think there's not another bank out there that wouldn't long to be the next Goldman Sachs and buy up their assets and take over their business and hire their smartest people? Just let Goldman Sachs go bankrupt and step right into that business? Of course there is. And this is the, this is the beauty of the market. But you can't, you can't go in there and protect certain groups um, it's unfair. It, it, and it, and it leads to bad outcomes. Okay. It leads to subpar service. It leads to subpar products for consumers to buy, and it leads to higher prices. So I, I just think this sports example is an excellent example of how the government interferes with the market. And, and what an obvious example it is that there was something going on because all of a sudden, within a couple of years, Major League Baseball just did a 180. I mean, it completely changed. And sports has never looked back, right? It's highly populated by black people. Why? Because they're better athletes, evidently. Um, I don't know if there's any physical reason why or if they just excel in sports more so than than whites and other groups. But there's no doubt about it that uh, black athletes, uh, this is where a lot of the rich come from in the blacks black community is is through this entertainment industry and the sports industry Uh, i saw something the other day that michael jordan's worth two billion dollars i mean the guy was a basketball player now he's subsequently become a great business person but still he started off in sports so it's pretty amazing when whites faced competition from blacks either as workers or merchants then they use the political system to rig the economic game. So what do you do? You pass a law that says uh, that you restrict competition so that all at once it's much more difficult for blacks to have a competitive advantage by being willing to work for lower wages, which historically is how people get ahead. And this is why the, the uh, um, people who are for discrimination are also against markets because they know markets tend to be colorblind. That's right. Markets are colorblind. They don't tend to be colorblind. They are colorblind. We buy all kinds of stuff from China, stuff that's made in China. Why? Because it's a good value. If I if I can buy something that one person is selling for $100 and I can buy it from another person that's selling it to me for $25, that means I have $75 extra to spend on something else. This is how our standard of living goes up. And this is the nature of markets. And this passing laws to restrict competition or to, to favor one company over another company or tariffs, all of this stuff is bad for consumers. It's bad for our standard of living. And it enriches people in government. And it enriches people that don't want to compete in the marketplace. And you need to constantly be on the lookout for it because it's it's not capitalism. This is where the big confusion lies. It's not capitalism. It's crapalism, crapitalism or crony capitalism. 
And it, it didn't just happen to blacks. It's happening to us now, right now, happening to everybody that lives in America. This is not unique to blacks. But it is interesting that he points out specifically how it was used against blacks. There was a, a move by black students to demand a black economics course. And so I asked my colleagues, imagine if Irish or Italian students demanded Irish or Italian economics, you'd throw them out of your office. But because of your guilt, you will listen to black students uh, saying the same thing. I kind of giggle when I heard this segment because here we are doing um, a show on uh, black history. The subject, the overall subject this, this month is black history. And I made a point early on that I don't think there's any such thing as black history, you know, in a, in a, in a more serious way. Um, certainly black people had their own unique experience, but there is no history of black people outside of the history that happened here in the United States. Uh, it may not be highlighted as, as well or, or whatever, but in, in course, Walter makes the point that some black students, at uh, where he was teaching school, wanted to have black economics. And his point is basically there is no economics. There's no black economics outside of just economics. There's only economics. But you see this a lot in universities, and it's it's part of this wokeism and all this other craziness that's going around is people are, uh, for some reason, and I don't know why, but for some reason we're going backwards back into tribalism or back into group. And you see this with intersectionality and some of these other theories. These are all taught in um, uh, women's studies groups and black history um, classes and things like that. Not just equality as a right and a theory, but equality as a fact and equality as a result. And that set in motion a cascade of subsequent programs, affirmative action, all the things the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission does. You know, every single one of them with the very best of intentions and every single one of them producing feedback loops and unintended consequences which have made it harder and harder to achieve the progress that was being achieved before we got into the equal outcome mindset. So the voice you heard on there initially was Lyndon Johnson, and he's given a speech about his anti-poverty programs um, and equality specifically around race. Now, what you hear him say specifically there is equality of outcome. Now, everybody knows, we've all said this, that we're all born equal, meaning we come out of the womb equal, equally poor, equally without skill, equally in the fact that we can't speak. We, we know nothing. I mean, we're, we're literally equal at that point. There's almost, there's no measurable difference between a black child that is normal right out of the womb, a white child, a Jewish child, or any other child for that matter, Honduran, Mexican, we're all equal right out of the womb. Okay. That's what it means to be created equal. But because of our experiences, how hard we work, 
the families we grow up in, the schools we go to, the teachers that inspire us, all these other things create an unequal outcome. And what Lyndon Johnson is trying to say here is that the government is going to get involved so that outcomes are more equal. Now, the problem with this equality mindset, just in general, is you never get there. You can never get there. There's nothing that you can do, really, that ever makes people equal uh, in the outcome world. It's like uh, it's it's similar to like trying to half the distance to a wall. So you walk from here to a wall halfway, and then you walk halfway again, and you walk halfway again, and halfway again, and halfway again, and you never get there. Okay, it's just not achievable. And this is the problem with equality. Now the government loves this idea because it's not achievable. So they can just run around and say, "Well, we have to do more. We have to spend more. We haven't." Our budgets haven't been large enough. Um, And so they love this idea of equality because it just constantly allows them to take and take and take more from the economy. Of course, they never really accomplish anything. And it's just, you know, it just makes for political power and uh, voting talking points and things like that. It's a way to pull people from one group to another when it comes election time. But this is unachievable, okay? To the extent it is achievable, it's only achievable by the market. And I know that's a pretty strong statement, and some people don't want to hear that. Some people can't hear that. Some people disagree with that. But it just is. (laughs) And so uh, I think Walter Williams would agree with that. Uh, Thomas Sowell would agree with that. Friedrich Hayek would agree with that. Even Keynes himself would agree with that. So... I don't think that's controversial to say. Racial preferences or or affirmative action uh, is one of the most effective uh, means, I believe, of reinforcing uh, racial stereotypes. People don't realize that if you go back from 1950 to 1965, uh, blacks were moving up on all sorts of important dimensions. And they stopped moving up on a lot of those precisely at the time when equal outcomes became the battle cry. That's right. Blacks were doing better. They were on their way out of poverty and into jobs and being effectively assimilated into the uh, uh, economic system and the division of labor. Um, And then these programs came along, and that's just a fact. And now that they're there, we can't get rid of them. Um, nobody seems to have the political will to get rid of them. But this is the way it always is with the government, by the way. The government tends to hop on a trend that's already moving in some direction. Uh, You see this with like OSHA and uh, safety in the workplace. There was already huge strides being made in safety in the workplace, and then OSHA was created, and they hopped on the trend and and said, look at all these great things OSHA was doing. If, If anything, OSHA slowed it down or made it, unequal in some way, uh, unfair. So these are just, it's just the nature of government. You know, they just don't, it's not that they don't have good intentions. It's not even that they don't have good ideas. It's just that the market is so much more efficient and has a way of 
crystallizing down to the, the best outcome that no matter what the government tries to do, it just can't better the way the market would handle it. And that's just the, that's just the nature of market. But there, it doesn't seem to stop people from imagining all these wonderful things that government can do. Racial discrimination and racism in our country could have earned a well-deserved death. But it has been uh, resurrected by race hustlers, or poverty pimps, I call them, uh, such as Jesse Jackson, Al Sharpton, and many others in the civil rights movement who make a living on the grievances of blacks. So I can just tell you right now, we will not be doing a program on Al Sharpton or Jesse Jackson, because I 100% agree with Walter Williams. And this is one of the bad elements that came out of the the uh, civil rights movement. And you could kind of, in the, in the MLK talk that I gave, I kind of allude to this, like that they, they did a great thing initially, right? They, they, they got the separate but equal type of segregation eliminated from society. But then they tried to go to the next step. And the next step involved using government to take from one person and give, in this case, to black people or black groups. And what this did is it opened the door for people like Jesse Jackson and, and Al Sharpton, and there's many others. And they simply found a way to make money off of it and uh, exploit um, other blacks. And it's unfortunate, but that's that's what happened. So, um, you know, it'd be good when those guys finally move on um, to the, you know, to the afterlife and we don't have to deal with them anymore because there just seems to be no way to get rid of them from the, the body politic. I went out there that summer and I was commissioned to do a study for the Joint Economic Committee of Congress on the minimum wage and the Davis-Bacon Act. That is, these are, are, are laws that regulate the, uh, the wages that people may earn. And I, I came to the conclusion that the minimum wage law discriminated against teenagers, particularly minority teenagers. And the Davis-Bacon Act uh, discriminated against uh, blacks in construction work. The interesting thing about this story that Walter tells is this is back in the 70s. I mean, this, this has been known for a long time. This was known within 10 years of the civil rights movement. All these things that I'm talking to you about. But yet they persist. And the reason they persist, I believe, is because once you create a government program, it, it just it creates walls around itself to, to further its existence. There is no way to get rid of it. And this is why we should be very, very cautious about creating government programs. It doesn't matter how bad the group needs a government program, we should be very, very cautious about creating them. The study on youth and minority unemployment, I, I got invitations to uh, testify uh, in Congress on uh, various aspects of labor economics and other topics as well, uh, on taxation, on, uh, on welfare. And, uh, and, and I used to get in, in, in some very, very uh, kind of nasty arguments with uh, congressmen because I don't have the level of respect for congressmen that, uh, that many people have. Boy, I agree with Walter on this. I don't have any respect for these congressmen or senators. I, I think they're 
just, I mean, they're just guys doing a job and they're not necessarily for the constitution. They'll say anything, you know, they'll say, Oh, you don't respect the constitution or I, I uphold the constitution. And every now and then you'll catch them in something where they slip up a little bit. But this next segment, I think it's going to be the last segment there. I mean, I could play clips from Walter Williams from now until ever, but, uh, we, we need to wrap this up. I'm running long, but I'm going to play this, uh, a couple of segments around licensing. And he talks about licensing in the context of stories around driving a taxi cab. And, uh, then I want to conclude with some thoughts around licensing, uh, licensing laws and why they exist and why they're a problem and who they harm. If you take a poor, uh, illiterate Italian in 1920s, and if he wanted to get into the taxicab business, all he had to do is buy a used car and write the word taxi on it, and lo and behold, he was in business making money. Today, it's entirely different. The price of a medallion, or the price of any license, it reflects the value that the owner of the license places on being in a government-protected monopoly market. Because if the government said anybody could get into the cab business, allow anybody, well then the, the price of a license would be zero, it would mean it wouldn't be worth anything. It leads to higher prices, and so the consumers hurt, and it's, uh, it leads to uh, outsiders not being able to get in. And that's the whole point of the medallion system, is to keep insiders in and outsiders out. So he describes the taxi business in the 1920s. And, and the reality is all business was like that in America. You wanted to, if you had the, the wherewithal to start a business, you just had to hang your shingle out there and say, I'm in business. You didn't have to go get a, a license or register your company as an entity and pay the state $575 and set up sales tax this. And I mean, it, it was just, it's unbelievable now what what we are burdened with, what business owners are burdened with in our economy. And you might say, well, Seth, I, you know, I don't care about business owners. I don't care what they're burdened with. Well, guess what? Those burdens come back to you in the form of higher prices. There are no free lunches. If a business is burdened with some sort of cost, it just shows up to you in the, in the form of a higher price and whatever you buy. So it, it does matter. It matters to all of us. Um, and he's, he's also right about, you know, the medallion business. It keeps, it keeps uh, insiders in and outsiders out. Uh, in other words, it, it, it thwarts outside competition. And people are willing to work in these protected businesses. That's why people buy uh, New York City taxi cab medallions. It's because they want to be able to run a cab and they don't want to have to worry about somebody getting into the business that uh, does a better job than them, has a cleaner car, and all this kind of stuff. This is why Uber was caused such an uproar, is because literally people just, I mean, I mean, almost, it was like this, they put the word taxi on their car, except they didn't have to even put the word taxi on their car. They just encouraged people to download an app, and if they clicked that they needed a ride on the app, they would, they would show up in a nice Honda Accord or a Toyota Camry that was clean, you got bottled water in the back and, you know, friendly driver that doesn't, the car doesn't smell. There's not a spring poking you in the butt or whatever. I mean, it's just a nicer experience. And, you know, if you have a protected business, 
There's no incentive to uh, improve the consumer's experience. There's only an incentive to just keep raising prices and, and don't spend any money on the customer's experience. All right. Well, look, it's been a, a fairly long show. And like I said, I could talk about Walter Williams forever. I think the guy was just brilliant. Sorry that he passed. Sorry for his family, his daughter. His wife passed previously, but uh, his daughter's still alive. But he was just a great man. Um, he had just a knack. Uh, I mean, I'm just jealous of how good he was explaining difficult subjects to people and asking questions that just made him go, hmm, you know, that was Walter Williams' gift. So look, I, I don't know, I might do another show on Walter Williams. There's there's a whole slew of stuff that he that he crusaded against with respect to the legitimate role of government. It's very interesting arguments that he makes. I might do a show on that. I'm not sure, but, um, but keep coming back because I'm going to do a show on something and I try to make it interesting. And, uh, I, I think, um, you know, with black history month, I'm, I'm going to do a few more of these, I think. And, um, at least the things that I enjoy talking about and hopefully you'll enjoy listening, um, about those subjects. And if you do share the show with somebody, send it, you know, just share it in your, uh, in your podcaster and you can text it to somebody and say, Hey, listen to this guy, you know, see if, see if somebody else likes me. Um, anyway, keep coming back. We'll keep producing programs and until next time who gets to decide. <laughs>